As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. When Paul approached me, I Googled him and uh, it was like, oh, hell, (laughs) he's been accused of everything. That's our friend, author Vicky Petratus, and the man she's talking about is our guest today, Paul Dale although he is better known as disgraced former drug squad detective Paul Dale. One of the things he's been accused of is organising the murder of Melbourne underworld figure Carl Williams. That fact alone will have split our listeners neatly into two camps. Some of you, those with encyclopaedic knowledge of Melbourne gangland, like me, frankly, will be absolutely ready to go but others may need a little help with the context of our story today. 
This may be hard for some of you to believe, but the first Underbelly TV series that dramatised the Melbourne gang war was aired in 2008. That's 12 years ago now, so a lot of you were too little to watch it. Now that I've depressed everyone else who remembers it very clearly, think about this. It was a TV series about a violent gang war that was on TV while the real violent gang war was still underway. This show made real people like Carl and Roberta Williams famous while they were still regularly on the 6 o'clock news for their court appearances. That's amazing, isn't it? Excuse me, ladies. Oh, you fat asses are stuck to their chairs, are they? Where are you going, Roberta? Go to the fucking dunny. Do you want to come and watch? <laughs> Nobody ever called Roberta Stevens a shrinking violet. Yeah, but Carl Williams didn't care about her mouth. He knew he'd find his princess. I'm going to be a bloke that makes so much dough. I can buy a chick like you. Whatever she wants. And Carl. Carl Williams. Underbelly was based on the book Lead Belly by Andrew Rule and John Sylvester, which is the Bible for anyone who wants to know more about this very strange time in recent history. Andrew Rule's podcast, Life and Crimes, is an excellent resource for keeping up with breaking developments and also extra special anecdotes from back in the day as they pop into his mind. Here's one about Carl and some notable associates showing an old friend a night out. The Melbourne Underworld War started in the spring of 1999 when Carl Williams was shot in the guts by Jason Moran. That is a well-known story. What is not so well-known is that about two weeks before, on a Sunday night, a good friend of Carl Williams, a, a childhood friend of Carl Williams, was sitting in a restaurant in St Kilda when his mobile phone goes. On the phone is Carl, his old mate Carl, the boy he used to play street cricket with. And our little mate sitting in the restaurant is in fact a very prominent sportsman who had performed in his particular trade, not only around Australia but internationally. And on this occasion he was back in Melbourne and he was keen to see his old mate. His phone goes and Carl's on the line and Carl says, I'm going to come and pick you up and we're going out. And our bloke, we'll call him Jock. Jock says, yeah, see you then, Carl. And he walks out the back of the restaurant after he pays his bill. And sure enough, in about 10 or 15 minutes, a dark-coloured anonymous sedan pulls in. And he realised that this sedan was the sort of anonymous car that Carl drove when he was doing business, as they say in the trade. He wasn't driving a flashy car. He's driving like an old Falcon or something. And this car was sitting quite low on its springs. It was fairly well loaded. And one reason for that is that Carl's driving and Carl was no lightweight. And in the seat next to him on the passenger side is the late Dino Dibra, who was a gunman and kickboxer of some renown and a thug and a lout and a criminal and a drug dealer from the western suburbs. And in the back seat is a little tough-looking man, little hard-looking man, who's about the size of a jockey. And our friend Jock shakes hands with him and finds out that his name is Andrew Veneman, otherwise known as Benji. So who we have in this car, uh, Carl Williams, the rising drug dealer of Melbourne at that stage that no one really knew about, and two of the people who would become very feared 
gunmen in Melbourne over the next few years. The car turns left and then it turns right down into the Nepean Highway. So it goes past Brighton and it goes past all those Bayside suburbs and Jock is wondering where they're going. And he's starting to worry a little bit because it doesn't look anywhere interesting and it seems to be a long way. And by the time they get to Morty Alec, he says, Carl, where are we heading? And Carl says something non-committal like, oh, we're just going for a drive. We're going to see a fella. And Jock knows when to shut up, so he shut up. And they keep going. They go to Frankston. They go through Frankston. They keep bypassing all the towns down the way. It's getting quite late by this. And eventually they get to Hughes Road. Carl sees the sign, turns left into Hughes Road, and he drives up Hughes Road over the sand dunes and into a large car park. And this car park is known as the Cunha Beach car park for the very good reason that it is directly above Cunha Beach, which is one of the wildest, roughest little beaches on the ocean side of the Mornington Peninsula. This is over on the rough side near where Harold Holt was drowned. And it's very rough water and no one's going to be there on a Sunday night at this time of year. The car park's empty and there's just a set of steps and a path leading down from the car park into acres and acres of tea tree and other scrub. Jock is very puzzled about what they're doing there and Carl turns around, looks at him and says, mate, I've finished my drink, can you hop out and go to the boot and um, get me another can of drink? He said, there's an esky there, you'll, you'll see it, Jock. Being a good mate, he hops out and he walks around to the boot, lifts the boot and he looks inside it and it's all lined in black plastic. The boot is lined in black plastic and it's not an esky as such there. There's two white tubs, those big white tubs that look a bit like eskies, but they're the white tubs that are commonly used at the fish market and at abattoirs. And he lifts up the lid of one of them and he looks inside and he thinks, oh, what's this? There's no cans of drink there. There's all meat in here. They must be going to have some sort of midnight barbecue. As he's looking at the esky full of meat, he realises the truth. He sees a hand sticking out, a human hand. The three fellows in the car thought this was a wonderful joke. They'd pulled this joke on their unsuspecting mate. He swore at them and was fairly shaken. He didn't think it was really good. And he swore at Carl and Carl just laughed and then hopped out of the car himself and beckoned him away because Carl was very cagey and careful about speaking in the car in case there were listening devices. And he had a bit of a chat to our mate Jock. Meanwhile, the other two, Debra and Veneman, hop out of the car, go to the boot, lift one tub out each and take a short-handled shovel that was in the boot and a torch and they wander off down the path, down the steps, into the tea tree and they're gone for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. And they return later with nothing but the torch. So clearly they've buried the tubs and they've buried the shovel with it and they've just come back with the torch. And then they hop in the car and return to Melbourne. This story is by way of being a preamble to the Underworld War because in that same month of October 1999, the same month that uh, the body in the boot goes down and is buried at the beach at Rye, Carl Williams turns 30, and on his 30th birthday, he meets Jason Moran and his brother Mark Moran in a park in the western suburbs, and that was the confrontation which led, of course, to Carl being shot in the stomach with a twenty-two pistol by Jason Moran, and had Jason shot Carl dead on that occasion, which it wouldn't be good because it'd be murder, it would have really been just one dead 
drug dealer that was a, a death quickly got over by everybody except his loved ones and probably would have prevented the entire underworld war because Carl took it deeply to heart that he'd been shot in the stomach and he got very, very vengeful about this and hired gunmen and hitmen and all sorts of nasty people to then start an extermination program against the Moran family and their friends and their supporters and their associates and their hirelings. So in the end, it was that meeting in late October 1999 that led directly to what we call the Underworld War. So yeah, some people think today's guest is responsible for the murder of that guy. Carl Williams, which is a pretty big deal, especially as our guest today was facing accusations of being involved in the murders of two other people at the time, one of whom was a drug dealer and police informant. Sounds like a pretty hard bastard, eh? Well, actually, he really doesn't. I remember having an interview with the Herald Sun many years ago, and it was after Carl Williams had been murdered in jail. And so straight away, you know, I was accused of, you know, coordinating that murder. So um, Mark Butler came up from the Herald Sun. I agreed to meet with him and we sat down and we discussed a lot of things. And I went through a, a long history of matters that have been going on and the allegations and the wrong allegations have been made against me. At that stage, I was still on bail for um, murder. I, I was living away in the country and I certainly had no contact or um, association with anyone of I felt at the time that could have had any involvement in the murder of Carl Williams and the fact that Carl Williams was actually in a, a most highly secure unit at Bowen Prison in the Acacia unit, a, a unit that I actually spent some time next door to him. How the hell could he possibly be murdered? It was incredibly incompetent of Victoria Police and well, corrections. the corrections mm-hmm. for that to have possibly happened. So... It was just bizarre that he could possibly be murdered there. So I, I gave this interview and the next day, across the front page of the Herald Sun, big picture of me, I didn't kill Carl. And and I just thought, well, this wasn't what the, the interview was about. And I was sitting on a bus the next day. I was getting on a bus to go to Melbourne for something from out of Wangaratta. And these people are sitting in front of me and they've got the Herald Sun and I can hear them go, oh, that's that Paul Day, you know, he lives here in Wangaratta and, oh, yeah, and they're talking about it. And I just leant forward and I went, don't believe everything you read. And I just felt sorry Jesus. for it, like they're going, and I'm sitting behind, this is the very next day. So, look, I guess the only way I can get my side of the story out is, like, through you guys, commercial media podcast. What we do, so, yeah. We're kind, uh, kind of alternative yeah, media, yeah. I guess, because we don't work for anybody. We're just, we're just independent. Yeah. I, I can tell you now from a background of high-level policing, high-level investigations at the Homicide Squad and Drug Squad, etc., uh, we were sought after for information from the media. So the media really look to Victoria Police and really want to make sure they keep in favour with Victoria Police because they want they want the heads up, they want the snippets, they want the, the little releases of information and that's why Victoria Police have got a media unit to coordinate all that so that detectives aren't just going off and feeding their favourite to get to the box at the footy next Saturday night type thing because that's what used to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess, you know, on paper, yeah. the reason that the Herald Sun or whoever it was ran that headline, it was like no one was suggesting that you, Paul Dale, crept into the Acacia unit and murdered Carl Williams. But the suggestion was that you have been charged twice with major crimes and on both occasions the star witnesses were murdered before they could testify against you and on both occasions then the cases fell apart. 
and you're a free man today. So if this were a movie, it would be a pretty clear-cut scenario. It's funny, my mind's going a million miles an hour while you say that. You'd be because, able to talk. You've got all the time in the world, okay. so it's okay. It's because okay. what you say there, when you and I've read it many times before, I've listened to um, uh, highly experienced criminal barristers talk in court and and then and do exactly what you just said then they go Mr Dale was arrested on this date for this burglary on such and such a date the main witnesses were murdered mm-hmm. he was then charged with this on such and such a date this person was murdered you know the only again the only witness against him yeah. I mean you are 100 percent right when you read when you look at the chronology of all of that you just go the first thing is again and that's what happened with Victoria police I think it was well it's him it can't be anyone else, it's him, and we're going to do everything we can in our power, whether it be legal or not. Now, whether that was a, a, a decision openly decided on at the time or it just came about that that's what happened in the end, that they used illegal evidence and did what they did that we will no longer touch on soon with lawyer ex Nicola Gobbo. But, yes, you could look at that and just go, well, it's got to be him. And I guess that sort of, in a way, goes to some way to answer why you? Why did they target you so hard? Like, why are you the person that in all of Victorian history and probably Australian policing history has been targeted so hard over all these matters? And so I guess that, you know, when you look at that scenario, you go, well, of course you would target that person very, very closely. Okay, let me just fill in some gaps for you here. In 2003, drug squad detective David Meeshall and informant Terry Hodson were arrested over the robbery of a house that had been under surveillance by the drug squad for months. Under questioning, informant Terry Hodson made a statement in which he claimed that our guest today, Paul Dale, who was at the time a senior member of the drug squad, was involved in the planning of the robbery. He alleged there'd been previous attempts to rob the property that Paul had taken part in and that he'd pulled out of this one earlier that night but was still expecting his cut. Subsequently, our guest today, Paul Dale, was charged along with Hodson and the other drug squad detective, David Meeshall, in relation to the robbery. The first person our guest Paul contacted for advice was defence lawyer Nicola Gobbo, with whom he'd struck up a bit of a friendship. Of course, we now know, because of the Royal Commission into the Management of Police Informants, that she was a registered police informant. And she passed every piece of information about their relationship on to her police handlers, including exchanges she said she witnessed between Paul and another of her clients, gangster Carl Williams. In 2004, while former detectives Dale and Mieschel and their former informer, Terry Hodson, were awaiting trial for the robbery. Terry Hodson and his wife, Christine, were murdered in their home. Former drug squad detective David Meeshall was convicted of the robbery and served 12 years. But without Terry Hodson's evidence, the case against our guest today, Paul Dale, fell apart. Five years later, in 2009... Our guest, Paul Dale, was charged with commissioning the murders of Terry and Christine Hodson. The prosecution alleged that Paul had engaged gangster Carl Williams to organise the hit 
and that well-known gunman Rodney Collins had carried out the job. Lawyer Nicola Gobbo was a witness in the case, and conversations she'd secretly recorded between herself and our guest Paul were entered as evidence. Once in jail, gangster Carl Williams began informing on the former detectives Paul Dale and David Meischel, and no doubt many others, in return for lucrative financial inducements from Victoria Police, including the payment of his father's $700,000 tax bill and private school fees for his daughter. Which is why, when gangster Carl was beaten to death in 2010, and again, there was no one left to give evidence against our guest today, Paul Dale, and therefore the case fell apart, some people looked at Paul when wondering who'd organised that hit. Ultimately, though, Carl's cellmate Matthew Johnson was the only person convicted for his murder. He was filmed carrying it out on CCTV. But the fact that Paul had some history with the only other bloke in the room didn't help his claims of non-involvement. But when you work in the drug squad, you get to know drug dealers, right? And as you get to know Paul Dale better, you'll realise that anything is possible in his world. If he's to be believed, he's been unfairly singled out, bullied, misrepresented and victimised by everyone from Australia's biggest ecstasy syndicates to our most well-respected journalists and Victoria Police, the entire organisation. If he's lying, he's a more terrifying sociopath than all of those gangsters put together. And all of those things are definitely possible. But by far the most baffling thing for me at this point is why he would choose to attract any more attention to himself by releasing a book instead of just leaving it all well alone. In fact, it's an update of his memoir, co-written by Vicky Petratus, called Cops, Drugs, Lawyer X and Me. I guess um, the answer doesn't change from back then to now, even though now I've got a Royal Commission backing up everything that I initially made claim to in my first book. I wouldn't go that far, but anyway, go <laughs> yeah, on. Okay. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I guess it's um, a matter of what's been portrayed through the media over such a long period of time has all been the police's spin on it. Yeah, they had a very they have a very powerful media unit. I was just Paul Dale, the accused corrupt copper. So any try and attempt to speak to the media about exactly what did actually happen along the way of all these different allegations and etc was just taken without any interest at all. You you say don't you want to just leave it? Yeah. Um, so 2003 I think was the first arrest. I don't think I've ever had more than about 18 months, maybe two years stretching it that I haven't been called to some inquiry. So I haven't been able to let it go. I've been to 12 compulsory hearings. People wouldn't know that. No, I didn't. So I'm never, ever going to get my reputation back. I am recognised most places I go. It's not recognised in a good way. And so I understand that and I've come to live with that. But I haven't been able to move on with my life because they just keep dragging me back in. They were 
throwing charges at me there early days that just were just so ridiculous. It was so frustrating and, and you know, and so many times you lost faith in the system because you're thinking, how can this possibly be allowed to happen? How can I be charged? Well, initially there were 23 charges of misleading or lying to the Australian Crime Commission and the whole basis of every one of those charges was based on a statement made by Carl Williams that said, for an example, one of the charges was, well, I met Paul Dale in a noodle box, Centre Road, Keelor, Centre Way, Keelor, noodle box. And he handed me documentation that was to assist me. So I think when I got my defence organised and we narrowed, went down and had a look, there was no noodle box in Centre Way, Keelor. Never has been and never was. They didn't even bother to follow up any of these allegations. They just simply went... Well, we can't get him on. We haven't been able to get him on this. We haven't been able to get him on that. Let's just give this a run. And you know what? The worst thing about just giving this a run is Paul Dale's now charged with 23 counts that goes all the way to the Supreme Court that costs me over $400,000 of my own money to defend myself. Otherwise, you just... What do you do you, if you can't defend yourself? And to defend myself, I have to sell my business. Otherwise, I lose my house. Yeah, who's got $400,000? Exactly. So they knew. It was a tactic and it has been for many years and it was a tactic that I used, un- unfortunately, when I was in, in, the, in the situation where we'd, we'd arrest someone, we'd charge him with 10 different counts, knowing that there was no evidence of the nine, but we got him on one. Well, at least I was confident we had him on one. But as I used to say to him, look, you might beat this but this is going to cost you a hell of a lot of money to beat it. And a lot of the time these drug dealers, high-level drug dealers, had that money. That was part and parcel of their, their gig. You know, they knew that that was a risk. I didn't have that money. I, you know, it wasn't something that I said, I, I, not my life going around committing crimes knowing, oh, I get caught, I've got the money stashed away there to get a good lawyer, get a... Well, in the end, a good lawyer was Nicola Cobb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. When you first came into the drug squad, did you become aware of corruption? I, I, and yes. I asked that, yeah, because I, I've never honestly met anyone who spent time in the drug squad who doesn't say, yes, of course, there was corruption in the Victorian drug squad. Yes, yes, <laughs> no, no, that's right, it yes. was. Um, uh, generation after generation. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. So the drug squad, as, as it was called, the drug squad, back in the probably right through till early 2000s was, was the drug squad under Chief Commissioner Nick, Christine Nixon as she came in from New South Wales. One thing that she really wanted to do was um, close down the drug squad because her history in New South Wales was that they were all corrupt. So I don't want the same thing happening here in Victoria. And look, and she, she she was right. I mean, it was out of control. There was numerous, several members of that drug squad just prior to my arrival that were charged with serious drug trafficking offences and all, a number of them were jailed. So that was all happening right then and there. They they created what they called the Major Drug Investigation Division, division sorry, which I was recruited in too. That was a... It was a high vetting process to become a, a, a supervisor there as a detective sergeant. Um, they were very keen to get new blood into the, try and get rid of all the corruption, get all of, all of those people out and get new, new people in. People with no, no history of any form of alleged corruption or potential unethical behaviour. So, and I had none. So what year did you come into the drug squad, MDID? So MDID was probably around 2000. Well, I was arrested in 03, wasn't I? So, yeah, okay. Did you know what months. you were going into when you went in there? Like how do you navigate that as a, you know, a copper who's trying to do their job and you're going into a squad that is known for questionable uh, practices? Yeah, yeah look, I, I guess. guess 
something I never really considered. wasn't something at all that was in my mind when I applied for the position, set the interviews, and um, and then was selected. It, I can't recall whether any of that was even part of the interview process. I mean, we were certainly, I was certainly aware that I was coming into a newly formed department within the crime department that, you know, has had some really, really serious issues with corruption in the past. I really didn't see, I, I didn't see any problem. Like, you know. Did you know that gang war was on at no, that stage? No, 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 the gang war wasn't on. And this is the thing, you know, again, there's a lot of allegations being made about myself and Carl Williams um, over the years. Those guys but, were kicking around, but it wasn't really a war correct. yet. So Carl was kicking around. And Tony under, Rockbell was kicking around. Oh, for sure, and, yeah. yeah. The Morans yep. and the... Yeah, the yeah. Morans, yes, yes. And I and I dealt with them all. Yeah, the Mockbell situation, well, they lived in Brunswick and a lot of their business was done around the, that suburb. I actually worked pretty much at every rank in Brunswick. We've got some major drug cartels operating in Melbourne. And all interconnected yeah, too yeah. with all the relationships yeah. and the... Um, yeah, no, 100%, you know. you're right. Carl's um, still in the good books with the Morans at this stage, is he, right? He, has no, he... no, no, no. So Carl's um, Adam and he wants to kill Jason at this stage. Oh, Jason's already shot, shot him, him in the guts? Yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> and no Gladstone one knew, Park. actually no one knew who shot, no one knew if it was Mark or Jason. So when I first met Carl, uh, first time I ever physically met him, um, and we were in the, out near Broadmeadows, Westfield Shopping Centre, mm-hmm. I reckon it was, Westfield, uh, met him there in the food court. Of course. And uh, he loved the food. Yeah. Uh, but so did I back in the days, I must say. Uh, anyway, so we met there for the first time. I was actually with David Meeshel. He was on my team. And it was all fully authorised. And this is the other thing that, you know, it's never been. If I check your police diary, this will be in there, will it? Look, and fully authorised. (laughs) And this is the thing that really bugs me too to this day is that there's so many things that they go, oh, Mr Dale was meeting Carl Williams and Mr Dale was meeting this person. Yes, I was. All fully authorised under the full knowledge of senior officers. And even when I was visiting, I think I'm allowed to talk about I hope um, so because he's in your book. Well, he's in my book mm. and, um, you know, there's been a lot of changes. If yeah, you no worries. To, I'll but check. But there's been a lot of suppression orders over the years in regards to, you know, one minute you're allowed to talk about him, next minute you're not. There's a whole story to talk about and hence the reason why they thought I was involved in Carl's death because was someone I knew. And there's a whole there's a whole can of worms there because I got a call from some lawyers recently that are representing who is suing Victoria Police over the fact that I registered him as an informer without his knowledge. Oh, yes. And I, and I maintain that to today. He did not know and I did not put him in any position of danger. Victoria Police certainly did. All of that is still in the book now, yes. so the legals must have... Yes, yep. and so that's a civil litigation about to be brought on by... Yeah, so mm. he's back in custody. Um, Muscle tough. You did register him as an informant. I did, he didn't yes. know, but how, So how does that work? Like, um, Well, I can't remember when was first charged with murder, um, but prior to that, I'd actually arrested him. I was at Brunswick uniform, but I never spent a lot of time in uniform because all I ever wanted to do was catch crooks. So I didn't spend a lot of time just behind the desk and ticking and flicking files. I um, I soon convinced my senior sergeant to let me get a few of the young blokes that are keen to become detectives, and you can identify them very, very quickly, um, and girls. Let me get a crew, you know, two or three, we'll call it special duties, that's what they used to call it, 
I'll go and hit up a car yard down the road and see if they'll lend me an old car, <laughs> yeah. which they always used to do because they were happy because the car yards used to get broken into or damaged and we'd say, look, we'll do a little bit of undercover work and keep an eye on the crooks. So part of that, he was in Brunswick. We believed he was involved in some cannabis cultivation. A lot of Back then, a lot of people were doing cultivation of cannabis in houses. They were renting houses and turning the whole place into a cannabis crop. Oh, yes. I remember seeing them on the news, you know. Oh, yeah, they huge. Yeah, the whole house. It yeah. was huge. So we thought he was involved in one in a couple of those. So one thing led to another and we uh, raided his parents' houses, which is where he lived in West Brunswick. He wasn't there. We found one ecstasy tablet in a coat pocket in a cupboard in his brother's bedroom. And um, his brother was overseas. So that was the evidence we had against <laughs> So... One ecstasy tablet. One ecstasy tablet jacket. in his brother's Jesus. jacket in his brother's room. So the brief, back in the day, the brief of evidence gets put together. I put a recommendation on it that there is no evidence to charge him, so request non-authorisation. My senior sergeant looks at the brief, goes through it, and agrees with me and never charged but I have been accused so many times of fabricating the reasons why he wasn't charged but they're the facts that's the facts of the case there was no way he could possibly be charged but as a result of that though I knew was moving in the right circles you know as in criminal circles well that's my belief I think it's been founded probably in recent years so I used to well not only me the uh, detectives back at Brunswick back in the day we used to used to drink at this pub called the Union Hotel and the Union Hotel was was full of characters so you had your your crooks one area of the bar over time, it became a bikies pub and they used to use the back area. But there was the crooks, there were other crooks, <laughs> <laughs> and then there was the detectives in this corner. It's amazing. It was a strip. It was not a authorised strip club, I don't think, although I don't know whether he needed a licence Can I ask a then. practical question about drinking at the same bar? Mm. Yeah. When you pass each other to yes. go to the toilet or something, yes. do you stop the conversation? Like when you, if you have to pass the crooks... To go to the toilet or whatever. Shh. There's hey. police coming. Or, Shh, crooks are coming. Stop talking about uh, Okay. So, again, that pub was a notorious pub and the toilets were out the back and they were like a concrete little block out the back. And you certainly needed to be mindful that you didn't find yourself out in those toilets one up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're certainly up. scanned. Yeah. Uh, depend, you know, because there were some Gosh. really heavy duty uh, crooks over the years that drank there. Mm. Um, I'm sure there were some heavy duty cops that drank there yeah, too. No, no, there, there was. And um, I'd run into for a few times, and he knew the owner, and I knew the owner. And so. That poor was, bastard, by the way. <laughs> well, I. So I was really keen to try and get friendly with because I could see. If I can get him to talk to me in any way, shape or form, and look, and a lot of the time the shape and form was they'd give you information about their enemies. I'm not saying he ever did, but um, that's normally what they would do. We've been told that crims are the biggest gossips out. What are they, gig- yeah, yeah. what are they call them, gigs or something? Gigs, yeah. yeah gigs, another, another informer, yeah. informer word right. in gig, so yeah. If a crook yes. gossiped to you, you would write him up as an informant without no. his knowledge? No, no, not at all, no? no. So this was a self-serving reason for, for doing, for writing him up as an informer. Okay. Back in those days, the process of registering an informer was just so ridiculous. It was basically fill in this one-page form, name, 
address, I think. You might, I don't know if it even had an address, or some of these guys wouldn't have an address, but you might make one up. Name, address, criminal history, aliases type thing, other names, and pretty much what you thought the person may be able to provide information about. And you would take that to your local detective inspector. All um, detectives would report through him, and he would normally be, back in those days, he was at Broadmeadows. And it was actually a inspector porter that was the inspector at the time that I got to approve the registration of But he wouldn't have cared less whose name or whatever was on that. It was a tick and flick thing for him and give you a registration number, so it might be A5. So forever in a day, I would refer to as A5 in any correspondence or anything like that. And that was how it worked. I was never like... I had to sit down and go to a board or a panel or any other format and explain why and how and or get him or get uh, the potential informant to sign any form of memorandum of understanding or any of this sort of stuff, which I think has been brought in years on. I, I don't know. I if couldn't not, tell you. By I, now it will be. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. This. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's as simple as it was. And the reason why I did that was I was preparing to look to take promotion to detective sergeant. So I was a uniform sergeant looking to get back into the CIB or the crime squads. So the way to get to, to make yourself look better at interview panels is to show that you are, whilst you've been out there in uniform, you haven't just sat behind a desk and tick flick papers. You've actually got out there and you're still actively yeah to show dealing. initiative absolutely you're and that's connected. the way that's the way detectives were back in those yeah. days. It was really all about and the fact that I drank at the, yeah. at the Union Hotel amongst criminals also showed. Well, you, mate, you're still mixing with them and you're talking to them and, and that's how you catch criminals, not sitting behind a computer. That's how we looked upon it. It might be old school thought process, but that's the way it was for us back then. Yeah. And so that's why I registered him. So there's been a, a hell of a lot of allegations and innuendo and all sorts of why? things because about... Why? Because what's the connection between him and Carl's death? Why, what's the oh, innuendo? In, he, okay, so him and Carl. So he's in that Acacia unit with Carl. So there's only him, Carl and Matthew Johnson in a little um, room not much bigger than this. Um, so he didn't murder Carl? but uh, He was actually on the phone is what I've read mm-hmm. um, about where his movements were and I think it's the person that he was on the phone to or shortly afterwards that I think they've got a bit of an interest in as to um, why Carl might Someone have Someone who may have financed? Something, yeah, along those lines. So the thing about all of that, though, is, again, the throw, just throw it back at Paul Dale, you know, as the uh, who's killed Carl Williams, you know, because he was a witness against Paul Dale. Paul Dale must have been involved. And then to start bringing all these, well, he knew that was his connection and that's how he could get to him. You know, do your homework before you start saying that stuff, you know, like have a look at what Paul Dale's connection was with and how, what connection has he got now? You know, I hadn't seen since he was, well, I visited him a couple of times in jail, authorised, authorised visits whilst on duty and all, and those visits had to be authorised by an inspector or above, fully authorised and reasons why you were going to see them. So, but again, you know, all you hear is he visited him in jail, still had the contact and all that, which is just 
The visits in jail happened in about 2002. What was Carl's murder? 210. You know, so we're talking eight years. So what I tried to do even back in those days, and the first time I met with Carl Williams, and as you say, knowing that you've gone to the drug squad that's got a history of corruption and, and all these sorts of things, so you do do things to try and protect yourself. So I asked to get a covert tape recording for when I went and met with Carl. Not the old buddy big tape recorder set, would just be ridiculous. This was the first time Carl Williams was willing to speak to an investigator off the record in a way, or on the record, well, certainly on the record for me. And so I applied to the the special sources unit or whatever they would call back in those days because they had all the covert things, you know. They had devices that looked like a salt and pepper shaker, you know. <laughs> they had all the things that a tie pin or whatever, whatever it took to make it obvious that it wasn't a tape record, that wasn't tape recording because these crooks don't want to, aren't going to talk to you with a tape recorder going. Not in those days. It might be different now because they get them to sign up memorandums of understanding and everything. But so I, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't give me one. So I'm sent off there to meet with him without that ability to corroborate what was said and done. Although I had Dave Misha with me, obviously the credibility issue there. Oh, yeah. Next week, things will get much more serious when we discuss the crimes that Paul Dale has been accused of being party to in one way or another. As he's mentioned, he was at one point charged with murder. In fact, he was arrested by none other than our very own Charlie Bazina. So you know the grounds must have been solid. The key witnesses against Paul Dale were Carl Williams and lawyer X herself, Nicola Gobbo. Williams claimed he was a go-between for our guest today and notorious hitman Rodney Collins, whom he claimed actually carried out the murder. For her part, Gobbo recorded a conversation with our guest Paul in which he told her, Carl's clear and made a very in-depth statement against me. When Miss Gobbo questioned its accuracy, Paul Dale replied, very accurate. Very accurate to the point of every single time we met, he seems to have documented it. More on that next week, but for now, Paul says that he had some very innocent encounters with Carl Williams over the years that were willfully misconstrued later, like this one. I got an award for a Chief Commissioner's uh, certificate for work done on the Gary Silkrod Miller murder investigation. So I was on the Lorimer Task Force for that two years. It took us to finally arrest, charge and convict Bendali Debs and Jason Roberts. Anyway, uh, sometime later, and I was at the drug squad at the time, when we were it, it, that task force was awarded a Chief Commissioner, but it was, it was delivered to us by the Governor-General at the time. It was done at Government House after that... That was done. Me and a group of friends and family and kids and everyone went down into Bay Street, Port Melbourne to have lunch. And lo and behold, there's Carl Williams, George's oh dad, f- and a number of other of his gang sitting over in, at a table. At that stage, I'd charge So we've got off on a tangent there with um, because he was there that day and hence the rubbish that's been said about my possible association and knowledge of him. So I've gone in to order a coffee and George and Carl and they've come up to say hello and I'm there with my wife, my child, other police and their families and their kids and I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Basically it was a hello. But years on, that meeting was apparently a planned meeting. Another where one I of your provide, meetings with Carl. Yeah, and <laughs> it says that, you know, he was present and he was standing there and I said hello to him and that's about as far as it went and I think 
he also makes comment that I handed him stuff and all this sort of stuff, all these allegations. But when you look at the reasons why these guys said that stuff, like getting, we'll get to at some point, but he's a guy that was um, in, implicated in several murders. But to give evidence against me, years later, I'm reading The Age and John Sylvester's got this headline about what's in a nickname type thing. And he's going on about, and because he reckons my nickname was Killer. And he's telling the story about me and he's saying how many years ago when I was at the armed robbery squad that I'd let basically allowed to jump out of the, the police car and, and run away on our way to court. I'm looking at reading this, you know, this big story, and I'm like, I was never at the armed robbery squad then. I never had anyone escape from me on the way to jail. And then it was like years later, here I am with that and all that again. I'm fuck, I was pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually, you know what? I went and sought legal advice. I'm like, I'm over this. You know, look, I can categorically prove this one's wrong. I went and found a detective that actually was the detective in the car that did fall asleep. That's what I was going to ask you. Was it actually some, it's a true story, but someone else? Yes, yes. Next week, we'll focus more on the details of the crimes that Paul Dale has been accused of being involved in, including the murders of Terry and Christine Hodson. And the week after that, we'll speak to their daughter, Mandy. Next up, though, Vicky Petratus on why she chose to help Paul Dale write his memoir. And thank you to these patrons, Brett Edwards, Lindsay Hodge, Felicia Taylor, Rihanna Geeson and Almadalia Gonzalez. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We'll be announcing an Australian true crime national tour very soon. 
featuring two very special guests. And our patrons will have access to some special perks. So it's a great time to sign up if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime Pod. Like these good people, Ashley Griffiths, Christine Bice, Glenn Brister, Benjamin G and Marie. Just Marie. Vicky Petratus has written many classic true crime books, but this one, Cops, Drugs, Lawyer X and Me with Paul Dale, is a bit of a departure for her for a number of reasons. She and Emily took some time to discuss the issues around writing true crime. It all came about when a friend of his got in touch with me and Paul was seeking an author to do his book. I probably have about I don't know, five minutes a year when I'm free to take on a new project. So I work full time writing my books, running my classes on the weekend. I just, I never read the paper. I never watch the news. And I know that sounds really bad for a crime writer, but I just don't have time. So when Paul approached me, I Googled him and uh, it was like, oh, hell, (laughs) He's been accused of everything. And another thing that I didn't do up until or prior to Paul's story is I wasn't particularly interested, aside from watching Underbelly like we all did, I wasn't particularly interested in Gangland because the work that I did as a crime writer, say for the Frankston murders, it was really about how does a community survive an onslaught of violence and and how do we make sense of it? And all of my books have really been about the people and really been about motivation and resilience. And, you know, Gangland, it really held no interest to me as a writer because the motivation, I think, was clear to make a lot of money and to wield power and violence. And it's not something that I want to spend a year of my life writing about because that's what you do when you decide to do a book. So when uh, Paul's friend got in touch with me and I said, yeah, you know, I'll I'll have a conversation with him. And I remember the conversation because he's in the country and, and so we spoke on the phone and he was really angry and he was just, he just, I think you know, he he got to the point where he didn't speak a lot publicly. When he did speak, it would be twisted. And I think he just learnt he couldn't answer back. And as a consequence, the newspapers would accuse him of everything and even stuff that he clearly couldn't have done and had nothing to do with. It just, he, he was absolutely living, existing outside of the law of slander or defamation because if you're slandered or if someone defames you in print, you have to prove that it's ruined your reputation. And as one of his lawyers clearly said to him, Paul, your reputation's so far down the toilet, no one can ruin it. So he was living in this world where the media could ruin his reputation and remembering he's never been convicted of anything. And then they could say whatever they wanted about him, true or not, with immunity because his reputation was ruined. So it's crazy town. It really was crazy town. I felt felt sorry for the predicament that he was in. It's interesting what you say about interest or lack of in the gangland stuff because I was probably in a similar vein. I've always been more interested in exactly what you said about the ripple effect of these kind of crimes on communities. And it's only really since doing this podcast and, you know, being more immersed in this world of true crime that we're both in, that you realise there's so many threads, so many interlinking threads with this gangland story. So I, I understand why when Andrew Rule and John Sylvester wrote the Underbelly books, it really sparked people's attention. But then all roads seem to lead 
to Charlie Bazina or the Morans or Carl Williams. So I think the interest has really picked up after quite a number of years of it being quiet, especially with the Lawyer X inquiry. Because I didn't know who's who in the zoo, I had to do a lot of research to find out who was connected to who. And that became really, really important because if you had things like Tony Mockbell was connected to the drug house at Dublin Street that was robbed and he's connected to Carl Williams. That was a well-known connection. And Rod Rod Collins is connected to Tony Mockbell's kind of father-in-law because Mockbell was dating Danielle Maguire and uh, Rod Collins was living with Joan Maguire, who's Danielle's mum. So once you started to piece all of these things together, you started to get a sense of connectivity that you go, hold on a minute. You know, there, there was a lot of talk that say that Paul had killed the Hodsons and there you've got Carl Williams being paid a lot of money by Victoria Police and the taxpayer to say that he did it, he organised it, but Paul paid him to do it. And then you look at Tony Mockbell and his connections and Carl Williams and you go, well, did Carl Williams himself have a motive to do it? And then when the police come to him offering him a million dollars, and his dad's $750,000 tax bill and private education for his kids and a reduced sentence, could he have said, yeah, Dale did it? Like, could he have just dropped Dale into this complex web that, that, that he had a motive to be in? And I think the, the question that keeps coming up in my mind, and we spoke about it this before when we were with Paul, is like, why, why Paul? Why him? You know, people who might think, well, he's got to have some skin in the game here if he's been dropped in it. But then when you talk about the tangled web of all these underworld figures, it sounds like, and especially we're talking with the background of the the Lawyer X Royal Commission, for want of a better title, happening, there was a lot of things being offered. There was a lot of people trying to get themselves out of trouble. This is another problem that I had as a citizen. When we read the newspapers, we assume that we're getting the whole truth. And when I was researching this, so I came from a platform of knowing absolutely nothing. Paul came to my house and he had 32 boxes of documents that he had got on discovery. So everybody's statement, everybody's everything. And he just left them at my house. He carried them up my stairs to my office and he goes, just read them. You make up your own mind. And when was so, this, Vicky? What year so was this? So this would have been in 2012. Yeah. And so I, you know, basically see you, Paul. And he left and I opened up these folders you know, folder one of brief of evidence and started reading and it was like, oh, my God, this is right from the start. The hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. It just didn't seem seem right and it didn't seem to reflect the actual story that was being told in the media. So, for example, when Terry Hodson was caught with Dave Meachell at the at the Dublin Street drug house, Dave's sort of caught red-handed and Terry's caught red-handed at the scene and they're connected to the scene with DNA and, and there didn't seem to be any doubt that both of them had done what they said. Now, Terry's put in a room and they say to him, Terry, you're going to go away for life, but if you give us someone else's name, you won't go to jail at all. Now, someone who's a wheeler and dealer and drug dealer, 
I mean, is it a stretch for us to say, well, what, what would I do? If I gave a name, if I just pointed the finger at anyone else in return for no sentence, because we know what the sentence would have been because we know what Dave got. So Dave was sentenced to a 15 with a 12. Terry would have got more than that because he had a criminal history. So he would have got got in 20 years. He would have died in jail. And so we, to me, if you read in the paper that Terry dobbed in Paul, if they don't write the inducement then we're not getting the whole story. So we go, Terry dobbed him, Paul. Well, why else would he dob him in? Well, you know, to get himself out of a life sentence, that could be a possibility. And I'm not saying that it's absolutely certain. Nothing in this case is certain, but it certainly needs to be considered. And if you read about the inducements that Carl Williams got, you have to say, well, could he have, could he have said, yeah, Dale did it. That's our Emily Webb with Vicky Petratus, who with Paul Dale has released an updated version of his memoir, Cops, Drugs, Lawyer X and Me, and it's available everywhere, including in the bookshop on our website, australiantruecrimepodcast.com. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back with part two of our interview with Paul Dale next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.